December 25th, is that the day Jesus was born? On December 25th, 336 AD, the emperor of Rome's name was Constantine. Whether it was a true conversion or a political play, we really don't know. But um, December 25th, the 21st to the 25th is really the beginning of the winter solstice. And what he did is he began to Christianize pagan holidays. Saturnalia is the beginning of the winter solstice and it's really um, a celebration to the pagan god Saturn, thus Saturnalia. But Jesus was not born on December 25th. For those of you who have been to Israel this time of year, it can get pretty cool at night at the end of January. And um, most speculate it was probably somewhere in September. We really don't know. And it's really not important. What's important is that he did come. And with that being said, this morning, we're going to do sort of a genealogy that leads up to one of my favorite places in Israel called the Shepherd's Fields. And I'm going to show you various people from David's line and lineage that were at that same spot that goes back all the way to Boaz and Ruth, to David, and all the way up to present day. And I'm going to show you a picture of the shepherd's field that I'm going to leave it up on screen um, throughout the study this morning. And what you're looking at is not my favorite picture. We had one up in the office because what you're seeing, this is seven miles south of Jerusalem. And then as soon as you get to where these uh, buildings are, when we go there, you never see the buildings. What you, we look across the field where you can see the fields are, and up, if you look straight ahead, it was a clear day, you could actually see the, the Dead Sea from that vantage point. And if you go to the right and you go up the hill, uh, you will find the city of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem um, has changed quite a bit. It's become a tourist trap. But this valley in between has relatively been unchanged for 3,000 years. And it was one of my favorite places to visit And when we go there, we have a Bible study. And there's a Bedouin family that knows that whenever we show up, we've been going there for many, many years, um, they go out and they get their sheep. They know we're going to have a Bible study. They know we're going to sing. And they will bring the goats out to sort of a little ambiance to the Bible study. (laughs) (laughs) and they know that if they bring the sheep out, they're going to be rewarded accordingly. So they're watching for us. And I got a picture up in the office of uh, them bringing uh, the sheep out, and while I'm giving the Bible study, um, there's actually sheep behind, and behind that you can actually see the city of Bethlehem. And uh, this 
I don't like this particular picture because it shows too much of the, uh, the building seven miles south of Jerusalem. If you'd go just a little bit more, you would see all of the shepherd's fields, which has been unchanged for 3,000 years. And it makes the Bible come alive. Talk about a spot. Um, it is um, a very, very special place. And you'll see why as we get into our study this morning. Uh, This Christmas Day, we'll look at some of the genealogy of Jesus. Um, I I thought Tim did a pretty good job reading those 20 verses. Don't you think he did a pretty good job? Pretty good. A minus, maybe a B plus, I don't know. Well, Ralphie got a C plus. He was disappointed, you know? Just kidding. Uh, they didn't know what to do with Eric being, being out, so they scrambled and, and came up with a couple Christians, Christmas songs. But uh, this Christmas Day, we'll look at some of the uh, genealogy, and I want to go back um, more than 3,000 years ago. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But 1,000 years before that, we had King David, Two generations before that, we have Boaz. And so I'm going to start, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at some of the genealogy of our Lord. And I'll pick it up in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab and Abinadab begot Nashon and Nashon begot Salmon. Now, this is where I want to start right here with this genealogy. It says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And we're actually going to go and look at the story of Rahab for two reasons. One, she was a harlot. Two, she was a Gentile. And it's going to paint a picture for us. But I want you to know that Boaz um, um, begot Obed by Ruth. And we'll be looking mostly at the book of Ruth this morning. And Obad begot Jesse, and Jesse begot King David the king. But before we go back to the Old Testament, I want you to turn to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. And I want to show you that God is very much a God of detail and numbers and time frames. And we read in verse 17 as it talks about the birth of Jesus. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So very much orderly. And then he gives his account, 
that um, um, I would like to read from verses 18. We'll look, um, Tim has already read Luke's account. I want to read and point out some misconceptions that people have about the wise men and that night. So let's pick it up in verse 18 now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make a public example, was mindful to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and you will call his, and he bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded them and took him to his wife. And they did, he did not know her, that means intimately, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. Between chapter one and chapter two, uh, there's a gap of time, as much as two years. If you look at verse 18, when the wise men do show up, um, they stir up such a, a stir in Jerusalem that everybody was afraid. I don't think there were just three wise men. I believe there was a huge entourage that the whole city was disturbed and they've been following the star. And they wanted to know where is he who is born king of the Jews? Well, Herod took offense to that, but he doesn't let on at this time. He goes, I don't know, ask one of these guys. What I want to point out here that in verse 23 of chapter one, we have an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. We'll be going there. But there's an, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter two, there's also another one when they um, uh, ask where is the king of the Jews to be born. In verse six, it says, he quotes Micah 5.2, and we'll probably be going there too, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And when Herod secretly called the wise men, departed from them, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, said, go and search diligently for the young child, and when you find him, bring word back to me, and I will come and worship him. And so they told him, and um, they rejoiced. And now notice verse 11. Jesus was born in a manger. The wise men saw him. But now some time has passed because Mary and Joseph are no longer living in a manger. 
Verse 11 tells us, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young man with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasure, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Why? Because Herod wants to know where he is so he can kill him because he doesn't like to be threatened by somebody else who's calling himself the king of the Jews. So what he does is he sends his henchmen in verse 16, and he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all districts uh, for two years old and under. So it could have been as much as two years until the wise men actually showed up. Now how many nativity scenes have you seen with the shepherds along with the three kings bearing their gifts? All right, just thought I'd tell you that. That's free. (laughs) But uh, they got the nativity scene wrong. There was a period of time that passed. The other thing I want to point out here is sometimes people say, well, you know, Calvary Chapel, they're always talking about Bible prophecy. And my answer to that is, how can we not teach Bible prophecy? What do you mean, Dwight? Well, we've just gone through three of them. And we've only gone through two chapters. You have to teach Bible prophecy. Isaiah chapter seven, that um, a virgin will conceive. That's a prophecy. It came to pass. Chapter two, verse six, you'll be, the city will be called Bethlehem. That's a prophecy. Um, chapter four, he kills every male child, Herod does, two years and younger. That's a prophecy. It says, uh, this was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Well, when a prophet has something fulfilled, what do you call that? A prophecy. How can you not teach prophecy? My answer back to them is your pastor probably doesn't teach the Bible, does he? Maybe a lot of topical Bible studies, but if you're gonna teach the Bible, you have to deal with Bible prophecy. And as you'll see this morning, it's sort of like a glove that fits together like this. You're gonna see things this morning that I guarantee you you never thought of before, and you've never seen before. It can be applicable to the youngest four-year-old child who understands that Jesus loves him. And it can be applicable to somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 70 years. And I like to say the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. And the more you dig into this book, the more your faith is gonna be increased because faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. Not by programs, not by um, seeker-sensitive messages. Um, Some churches don't even open up a Bible. They have a topical Bible study and they don't even read any scripture at all. But just pointing this in, I mean, we're, in, we're into two chapters and we've already gone through uh, three Bible prophecies. By the way, just as a teaser for next week, every New Year's Sunday, I have a study called Looking Back and Looking Ahead. And the things that have happened this week in the world um, and things that just happened yesterday are so monumental on the times that we're living in and the imminent 
return of the Lord and the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 is happening as I speak this morning. Some of you who are um, keeping up on current events and things that are taking place in the world, well, I'm just gonna lay it all out next Sunday. Everything you hear on the news in America, just the opposite is true. I'm gonna say it again, because 90% of the American public believes what they hear on the news. And I want to tell you Zelensky's little um, visit with, with Biden and who Zelensky really is and what's really going on because, well, here's just a little teaser. While that was going on, uh, Putin was meeting with the president of Belarus. Oh, I want to give more teasers. <laughs> All right, I will. All the military vessels in Russia are out of port. Every submarine in Russia is out of port in the Black Sea. Every buildup that's happening in Belarus right now and the meeting that took place while Biden was here with uh, Zelensky, you know he's an actor, don't you? (laughs) Pretty good one at that. And um, uh, the buildup right now, this was, this is Amir Shafati. Here I go. Everybody here knows Amir. He's a Messianic Jew from Israel. Said every air raid siren in Ukraine is, is going off right now. Why? Because every military aircraft has been moved from their military bases and scattered throughout Russia. And let me just uh, tease you a little bit more and tell you, I'm not just gonna present this to you, I'm gonna prove to you who the good guys are, who the bad guys are between this Russia and Ukrainian war and how it fits into what's about to happen with the rapture of the church in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. Enough of a teaser? Okay, that's next Sunday. Bring a friend. All right, so we've made this through here. I want you to also notice Let's go back to verse five of chapter one. And in verse five it says, Solomon begat Boaz. No, and I'm not talking about Lee's dog. (laughs) I knew I'd get you yet. They just got a dog named Boaz. And um, Solomon begat Boaz by Rahab. So let's begin our study this morning by going back to the book of Ruth. I'm gonna take, I want you to follow through the scriptures with me. The the book before Ruth is Judges. So if you go to the end of the book of Judges and before the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find the four chapters of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter one, let's read the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, so this would be before the kings, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So they're in Bethlehem, but they have to leave because of the famine. So they go to Moab, which would be considered today modern-day Jordan. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and their sons, 
uh, they had two sons, Melion and Chilion, Ephraimites of Benjamin, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And I want to just interject this at this time. When they came into the land, uh, the land would have been designated. Um, the different tribes got different portions of the land and it remained in the family. It was their land permanently and it would be passed on from generation to generation to generation. So they have to leave because of the famine, there's no food there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. And they took wives of the woman of Moab. Okay, that they're Jews, the women of Moab would have been Gentiles. The name was one was Urfa, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years and then both Melion and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husbands. You got the picture? Her husband dies, her two sons dies, they marry a couple Moabite girls. I'm not gonna read all this, but I'm, I'm gonna explain it to you. So we have them, um, Ruth doesn't know what to do. She heard a rumor that there's food again back in Bethlehem. So she says to the two girls, I want you to go back. I want you to marry people from your own country. But I'm gonna, verse 12 says, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Tradition would have been that um, if they were gonna go back to Bethlehem in order for them to remarry, Naomi would have to remarry, they would have to grow up, and that's how that was passed down from family to family to family. So she's explaining it to them. Can't do it. I would be way too old, and you would be way too old. And um, should I have a husband tonight and go and bear sons? Would you wait for them till they're grown? Now, all this is important that you understand Jewish history and literature and inheritance, and so on and so forth. So one of them says, all right, I'll go home, but not Ruth. Um, there isn't a wedding that I do that most of the gals don't pick out this as their vows in a wedding. This is what Ruth said to Naomi. Um, except for the first part here, she says, please entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. But the girls like this part, to their husbands-to-be. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and I. And when Naomi saw that she was not going to be deterred to stop her, she stopped speaking, and so they both returned to Bethlehem. And it just so happens that they get back into Bethlehem, verse 22, that when Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, came to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem, place of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest, chapter one. We have them leaving Bethlehem, 
going to Moab, losing a husband, losing two sons. Ruth comes back with Naomi. And they get home, and it's harvest time. Brings us to chapter two. And Naomi had a kinsman. Now this is gonna be important, this is a relative. We call him a kinsman redeemer, and I'll be bringing the redeemer part in just a bit. Of her husband's, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. All right, now we're going back to Matthew chapter one. We find out he's part of the genealogy of Jesus. And now we're introduced to him. Who is he? Well, he's a kinsman to Naomi. He's wealthy. And um, he happens to have these fields. This is where a barley harvest was taking place. The very picture that I have up on a wall, that's where Ruth is going to go gleaning for food. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go in the field. What field? Those fields. And glean handfuls of grain after him whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now there's a law. If you have a cross-reference there, it says Leviticus 19, verse 9. It says, if you're Jewish and you plant your fields with grain, that you can harvest the whole field, except you can't harvest the corners. In other words, every corner, you couldn't harvest it. Why? It was for the poor. And so they could go out, and it was sort of a... Um, a welfare program for the poor that Israel had in the law, Leviticus 19, verse 9. You cannot glean the corners of the field. That's left for the poor people. Well, who's poor here? (laughs) Naomi and Ruth, they don't have nothing. And so she left and went gleaning in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the city belonging to Boaz, who was the family of Elimelech. And now Boaz came from where? Bethlehem, there, to his fields, there. And he says, the Lord be with you, and answered him, the Lord bless you. I have a question here. Most people have Monday off, right? Okay, so imagine going to work on Tuesday morning. You open the door, and the first thing that the Lord, that your boss says to you, the Lord bless you. <laughs> and it doesn't happen too much, does it? Well, that's how he greeted his workers. Lord bless you guys. And they answered him, the Lord bless you too. And then Boaz looks around to his servants who was in charge of the reapers and said, who's that woman over there? Can I read into this a little bit? Who is that woman over there? (laughs) I think he took a special interest in her Uh, from the get-go. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it's it's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from Moab. And she said, please let me glean and, and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and continued from morning until now. Uh, she rested a little while at her home. Now, Boaz takes special attention to this woman, and he seeks to protect her. 
I per- we're told here she's a virtuous woman, um, but I also believe she was a very beautiful woman. And Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, will you not? I don't want you to go into glean in other fields. And I don't want you to go here, but stay closely by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they have come and go after him. Have, notice this, have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? Hands off, boys. Leave her alone. So he's taking a special interest in her to protect her and to provide for her. Two reasons. I think he's attracted to her, number one, but he's also family. He is a near kinsman. And so he gives us instructions And she's grateful and says, I'm just a foreigner here. But he says, I've heard about how you've taken care of Naomi and and her and um, how the Lord has brought you under the wings. You have come for refuge. uh, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. You have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. And then I like this. In verse 15, when she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Forget the corners. Let her glean wherever she wants to. And then he goes on to say, and do not reproach her. Um, Also, let some grain from the bundles fall purposely to her. Are you following this? So the guys that are doing all the hard work, they're putting the green in, but every once in a while they're reaching it in their pocket and putting it out on the side. So she's got all that much more to glean. So that by the time she comes home at night, Naomi says, where in the world were you gleaning today? Because you don't bring uh, uh, that much from just gleaning. There's a whole lot more. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living. And Naomi said, this man is a relative of ours and a near kinsman. You know what's happening next? The wheels are starting to spin in Naomi's head. And he says, he's relative. He is a near kinsman. And it is good, my daughter, that you are with his young women, and that the people do not meet you in the other fields. So they stayed close by the young woman to Boaz and gleaned until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt, and we have the end of chapter two. As we look at chapter three, we find um, Naomi plays gentle, and she's scheming. And Naomi in verse one, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that you may dwell, be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our near kinsman? Now again, remember one of the questions that was asked Jesus, this is my notes, this is coming to my mind right now. They did not believe in the resurrection. So they sought to set Jesus up with a trick question. Said, uh, well, we knew this um, 
woman and her husband died, so her brother married her, and then he died too, and uh, so it was passed on to the next brother, and then he died, and then passed her on to the next brother. You guys follow me what I'm saying here? You gotta keep it in the family. And they're trying to trick Jesus with this question because they don't believe in the resurrection. They were Sadducees. And that's why they were sad, you see. They were Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection. Dwight, you've told that joke a hundred times. I know I've told that joke a hundred times, but there's always new people here at the first time. So, there. So the quick question in the trap was, there's no resurrection. So they say to him, very condescendingly, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And Jesus said this, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. They don't know the scriptures or the resurrection or the promise and the hope of the resurrection. He says, you guys don't have a clue what you're talking about. You just don't know. That's what's going on here. He's a near kinsman. And um, the nearer you were to the family, the more rights you have to not only the property, because the property gets passed on with the descendants, but so does any unmarried woman that might be a part, but would have to be married to somebody in the family and the closest one to that. Notice here it uses the word near kinsman. All right, let's take it a little bit farther. Um, We'll read the first five verses of chapter three. We read verse one. Now Boaz, whose young woman you are with, is he not our kinsman? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now the harvest time is over. So what do you do when harvest is over? You have a harvest party. And that's what they were doing. Uh, Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garments, go down to the threshing floor. What the men would do to protect their um, harvest would sleep by it and uh, to protect it. And, And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then he shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies down. Go and cover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say I'm going to do. Curls her hair, puts a little perfume on, gets all decked out, goes down there. He's sleeping, uh, taking care of his uh, property. She uncovers his feet, and when he does so, that evidently it woke him up. And when he woke up, um, Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was cheerful in heart. He laid down at the, by the head of grain and she came softly and covered his feet and laid down. It happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there was a woman laying at his feet. And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she proposes to him. <laughs> Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a near kinsman. 
Now, gang, if that's not a proposal, I don't know what is. I take it Boaz was a little bit older because he says, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and you did not go after younger men, implying what? That Boaz was probably a little bit older than her. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you request. In other words, you're proposing? I accept. Except we have one little problem. Um, Verse 12. It is true, I am your near kinsman. However, there is a kinsman even nearer than I am. And he would have first rights. And so he goes to the gates of the city, he waits all night, he gathers the leaders of the city together, and he waits for this dear kinsman to come by. His name is Hosechawan. How would you like to have a name like that? I actually had a, a parrot that I, I didn't know what to call him, so I called him Hosechawan. I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> and they sat down, and he sees the kinsman coming by and he took 10 of the elders that had them sit down because he wanted witnesses and he said to the near kinsman who had come back from the country of Moab who sold the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech and I just thought to inform you saying buy it back Uh, you're the nearest kinsman in the presence of all the inhabitants of the elders of my people And if you will not redeem it, then I'll redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me and I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I'll take it. I'll buy the land. Great deal. And then Boaz reminds me, oh, by the way, the day you redeem the property, you got to redeem what goes along with it. And in this case, it's Ruth. And um, he explains to her that to keep the name of the uh, Mary uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, to raise up the name of the dead of the inheritance. And then your kinsman said, I cannot redeem it. My wife would kill me. Oh, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> I can't redeem it unless I ruin my own inheritance. Well, that wasn't his attitude a couple seconds ago. Um, So as the custom was, he took off a shoe. It would be like signing an agreement. And he had the elders of the city all there. They're all witnessing this. Takes off a shoe, hands it to him. It's like a signed document on a contract. And everybody's, he says, everybody see this? He goes, yep, we've seen it. And evidently, you inherit it. Brings us to the end of the story. Boaz marries Ruth. Let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a near kinsman, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may you 
be to a restorer of life and a nourisher of your own age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons who bore him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, this is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of King David. So Obed would be the great-grandfather of King David. And it says this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Psalm. And Psalm begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. I want to back up here and um, uh, just add a little insert to how Boaz came uh, to be in the, in the first place. And so with that, I think I'm in, not Isaiah. Well, I'll just tell the story. When Joshua brought the children of Israel into the, into the land. Before he crossed the Jordan, he sent spies over to check out Jericho. And the two spies went in and they checked it out. And it says they came to the house of Rahab. And it says she was a harlot. And she hid the two spies. But there were people in town that said, we watched these two guys go into Rahab's house so they, they confront her. And they get wind that they're coming after these two spies. So Rahab takes off, uh, has, has the two men take off. And the guys show up at the door. Where are the two guys that were in here? I don't know, they left. But before they left, he said, now, when we take this city, what I want you to do is it will be destroyed. But because you protected us, I want, you to, I want you to hang out a scarlet thread from your window. And when we take the city of Jericho and we look for this scarlet thread coming from a window, we'll know that that's your house. You get your father, your mother, your relation, and anybody that's in that house that has a scarlet thread will be saved, okay? So, sure enough, the scarlet thread, I actually have a whole chapter in my Bible that's called the scarlet thread. Let me just read it to you. After the death of Moses, Joseph went over Jordan and he led the war of conquest. In the first confrontation at Jericho, an incident happened which gave rise to the title of this summary, the scarlet cord. The scouts sent out by Joshua to spy out Jericho were saved by the faith and kindness of Rahab. The man of Israel promised life and safety both for her and her father's house if she would bind a scarlet thread in her window. This she did, and when Jericho fell into the hands of Joshua, 
by the intervention of God, Rahab and her family were spared because of the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread of redemption runs from the book of Genesis all the way through the Bible, and this is just one of the incidences that were there. I'm gonna go back to Matthew 1, you don't have to, but it says, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. What happened to Rahab? Well, she married this guy named Solomon. Who was her son? Boaz. Just a little background that leads up. But I want to point out two things here. Solomon would have been Jewish. Rahab would have been a Gentile. And so we have a bride, a wedding taking place, not only between Boaz and Ruth, but between uh, Solomon, not Solomon, but Salmon, and Rahab. They got married. I'm coming, we'll close up with that. You probably know already where I'm going with it. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's fast forward two generations to King David. First... Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? Saul hears that he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and I'll come and say you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, went to Bethlehem, And the elders of the owners trembled at his coming and said, do you come peacefully? And then he said peacefully, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so when they came, they came to look at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me because he was tall, dark, and handsome. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance at the height of a statue because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see like man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Neither has the Lord chosen him, then Jesse, um, then Shammah. And he said, don't you have any others? And he said, "Um, well, there's David, um, the youngest. And what is he doing? He's keeping the sheep. He was a shepherd. Question, where was he keeping the sheep? Oh, right there, in those fields. David lived 3,000 years ago. And that field still exists to this day. And so we find that David was known as a man after God's own heart. And as a result, um, this basically 
These fields have been unchanged after all these years, one of my favorite spots in all of Israel. As I mentioned earlier, seven miles south of Jerusalem. There's one more group of people that the Lord would appear to some 3,000 years later, which brings us to our text, which means we're just starting our Bible study right now. So let's go back to Luke chapter two, where Tim read for us earlier. And we find in verse eight, remember I said I wanted to sort of go through a genealogy? So we have Boaz and Ruth, we have David, and now 3,000 years later from David, in the same fields, verse eight of chapter two, now there was in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, just like David. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a great... uh, there was an angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And I have to stop there and I say, what? Peace in this world? Are you kidding me? Well, when you read it more correctly in the Hebrew, basically Jesus said to those who would follow him, my peace. I give unto you, not as the world gives, not as the world gives, but my peace. So the correct translation here is anybody who will believe in me, I will give them a peace that passes human understanding. That's what's being said here. So when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they saw him, they made him widely known, the saying which was told them concerning the Christ. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and it was told them. The message you just heard this Christmas is basically the message I give when we visit the shepherd's fields and um, talk about the Bible coming to life. It's unbelievable because you are there. Boaz and Ruth were there. David was there. The shepherds were there. And now I tell the people, it's not changed, and now you're here. And then they bring out the sheep, and, um, and it's a good, great photo op. We're gonna close this morning by looking at the book of Galatians. The title of uh, the message this morning was The Fullness of Time. And in chapter four of Galatians, verse four, 
It says, but when the fullness of time had come, remember back in Matthew 1, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations? Perfect timing. When the fullness of time has come, I hope that takes out a new meaning to you. It means that the Lord has everything set to the day, to the hour, to the minute when he is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. I don't think I've asked for an amen yet this morning. Amen. Amen. And then, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem? You mean the reason that God sent his only begotten son into the world was to redeem as in kinsman redeemer? Let me take it a step farther. He didn't come just to redeem you. He came to marry you. You are the bride of Christ. You are a Gentile bride. So he not only came to redeem as a kinsman redeemer. You see, the whole book of Ruth is nothing more than an Old Testament picture of when Jesus comes with the scarlet blood coming down Calvary's cross to redeem you. There's none here that are righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Another good place for an amen. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're all in the same boat together. But he's given us a free will. Like Boaz, I got a little problem here. There might be somebody closer. I got to deal with this issue. But I want her. She's one pretty gal. And, but he had to jump through the legal hoops. Well, there's a legal hoop when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Paul's in your court. Not here to twist your arm. Here to tell you the truth. But no, please don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Everybody here is going to live forever. Everybody. That's not the question. You have a spirit, you have a soul. Question is, is it redeemed? And have you accepted the proposal made by our Lord and Savior where he wants to be, he wants you to be the bride of Christ? Remember what John the Baptist said? He said, I'm, I'm not the bride, I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. The church holds a special place in the body of Christ. You're a Gentile. That's why Rahab was a Gentile. That's why Ruth was a Gentile. It's all an Old Testament picture of the Bible study that you have heard this morning. So as we enter the end of 2022 and next week be starting, my friends, we're entering into a whole different world. And... um, All the convergent points are all coming together at one time. The hour's late. And it's time to make sure that you've made your peace with the Lord. And um, if you do, when Jericho is attacked or Passover, why do they celebrate Passover? Oh, because they had to put blood up on the door. Scarlet blood. And it says, when I see the blood... I'll pass over. 
and you'll have life in that house. When I see the scarlet cord coming down, that house will be saved. Why, it's a picture. It's a picture of Jesus dying on a cross. For who? For me and for you. Gifts. Don't people talk about gifts? What are you getting for Christmas this year? My wife came down this morning. You want your Christmas present now or later? <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm doing this right now. But think about what did God say about Jesus Christ? He says, it's a gift. The gift of God. It's a gift. It's the greatest gift you'll ever receive. What, do you deserve it? Nope. Well, what could I do? You can say thank you. Lord, for dying for me. You can love him. You can praise him and give him the glory that's due his name because there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. But again, he will not force you. He uses this book right here to get our attention. And if you understand it, then allow the Holy Spirit to to invite him this Christmas, and receive the greatest gift you'll ever receive. Amen?